Well, this morning, as we begin our time together in the Word of God, I would encourage you to take your Bibles, and I'm going to ask that our PowerPoint presentation be brought up on the screen this morning. And I want to bring a message from Genesis chapter 24 this morning uh, that is a very, very significant message for us. And I'm going to ask that our video tech would bring that up on the screen if he would. Uh, thank you very much for doing that. And um, as he does, I think you would all agree that we have a very, very significant title. The title of this message this morning is How to Marry the Right Person. Are we having a little bit of trouble up there this morning, are we? Uh, okay, he's nodding that we're having a little bit of trouble. And uh, so that's uh, sometimes what happens. But I think you would agree, there we go, there we go. I think that you would agree with me that this message we're about to look at this morning, how to marry the right person, is a very important subject for us to consider. And to show you just how important this is to God and how much he wishes to help us, I want you to notice these facts about Genesis 24. They are quite astounding. This is the first reference to marital love in the Bible. When the last verse says, Rebekah became the wife of Isaac and he loved her, that is the first time we read those tender words in all of Scripture. Now, when something occurs first in the Bible, sometimes it's a pattern for the entire Bible. So the principles for marriage in this chapter are foundational to the rest of Holy Scripture. Notice, next, the first prayer for divine guidance in the Bible is in this chapter. Think of this. The first time someone says, Lord, guide me, it's in choosing a marriage partner. How significant is that? And then this is the only event in Genesis repeated twice in the same chapter. It is rehearsed a second time. That's the only time that happens in the book of Genesis in the same chapter because this is so important. And then this is the second longest event in Genesis. The flood is the longest event. It covers 75 verses a bride for Isaac, 67 verses. Henry Morris uh, is the founder of the Creation Research Institute. I want you to listen to what he said about this chapter. Though perhaps no other marriage has ever been more important than this one, all marriages are of special concern to God. For this reason, Christian young people and their parents would do well to study carefully the principles guiding the preparations for this marriage as they contemplate their own. That is good advice. Very good advice. And so this morning, we want to follow that advice as we delve in to this chapter of marriage principles and we're going to see that there are four of them. There's the purpose principle, the prayer principle, the character principle, and the counsel principle. Now, with 67 verses, I have two options this morning. I can preach one, one-and-a-half-hour sermon, or I can preach three half-hour sermons. And knowing how well we love one-and-a-half-hour sermons, I've chosen option number two. So... I'll 
deal with you later, all right? <clears throat> so let's begin today with the purpose principle, and this is very important. Marriage is to help fulfill God's will for your life. That is why you get married. Young people here today, as you anticipate marriage in the future, you look for a person who together you can fulfill God's will for your lives. Let's look at verses 1 to 9 here in Genesis 24 and notice the instruction of the word of God. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning the matter. Now these are Abraham's last words recorded in the Old Testament. And I think we all know that last words are very, very important, especially in the Bible. Last words are very, very crucial. Abraham's main concern here is God's will for his life and for his family. All the features that we have just read relate to God's promises and his plan for Abraham and his life and his posterity. When he says, the Lord said to me in verse 7, to your offspring I will give this land, well that's first promised way back in Genesis chapter 12. When he says, this woman must follow you back here, the word follow is the same Hebrew word for go, the very first command in Genesis 12, Abraham, go to Canaan. And when he tells the servant, <clears throat> I want you to take your hand and put it under my thigh, that is near the male organ of reproduction. Such a significant and sensitive place is highly symbolic of something very, very important. You see, the hand under the thigh would be very close to Abraham's circumcision, and you know God gave Abraham circumcision as the sign of the covenant back in Genesis 17. Circumcision on the reproductive organ was a promise of bearing children and offspring, and then when Abraham says in verse 7, the Lord swore to me, he's talking about the oath that God added after the incident with Isaac on Mount Moriah when Abraham was ready to sacrifice his son. 
So you put all of this together, and it's clear what Abraham is doing. He is tying together all the promises of God in the plan of God. It is all here, and now he is saying to his servant, find a wife who will help fulfill God's will. That's what he's saying. Now this is very significant, because I find here the purpose of marriage. There's a big difference between the blessings of marriage and the purpose of marriage. The two are not the same. And it's important for us to distinguish what are the blessings from what is the purpose. The purpose of marriage is not sexual fulfillment. Now that is a great, great blessing, but it's not the goal. The purpose of marriage is not companionship. Now that's a huge benefit. A marvelous benefit, but it's not the goal. The purpose of marriage is not the bearing of children. Now, that is a tremendous part. And in this day and age when many couples don't want to have children, we need to stress that that is a part of marriage. But it's not the goal. The purpose of marriage is so that you and your spouse together can help each other fulfill God's will. That's the purpose of marriage. You see, God has a plan and a purpose for each and every Christian. And your spouse will either help you with that plan or hinder that plan. And so we need to understand what God's plan is so that we can make the right choice. Now it's interesting here, Abraham insists on avoiding two types of marriage partners. You can see how emphatic and how insistent he is. And so we need to learn from him. He says, avoid an unbelieving person. He says very clearly in verse 3, Do not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. Now, this is the very first time this prohibition occurs in the Bible, but it occurs many, many more times in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Here is a verse from the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 7.39, notice what it says. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes. What are the last four words? Only in the Lord. That person is to be a believer. They are to be a Christian. This is to be a marriage where both are in union with the Lord. Now why? Why is this so important? Well, do you know how many years Abraham witnessed in Canaan? You ready? A hundred years. He came in when he was 75 in the next chapter, which we will get to in just a few weeks, and, and we'll have his legacy in that chapter as we finish out his life. He died at 175. In all those years, a hundred years, how many Canaanites did he win to the Lord? Zero. Not one is recorded. 
The Canaanites rejected the ways of God, and because they did, they were under the judgment of God. A marriage partner from them would drag Isaac away from the Lord and disrupt everything. There are a couple of verses in the New Testament that are not written specifically for marriage. But oh, they apply to marriage. Look what 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15 encourages us with. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, that's another name for Satan, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Certain things don't mix, do they? Light and darkness don't mix. Righteousness and lawless don't mix. Christ and Satan cannot be mixed. What's the last two that can't be mixed? A believer and an unbeliever. This is why I say, and I touched on this just a few weeks ago, be very, very careful about dating a non-believer. Be very careful about that. Now, sometimes it works out, but I know many times, many times, it does not work out. And here's the danger. If you start dating an unbeliever, you may fall in love with that unbeliever. And if you fall in love with that unbeliever, it may be very hard not to marry them. And if you marry them, They will affect your marriage, your life, and your family. And so Abraham is very, very clear about this. Now, let me just say to those of us who might be here today, and maybe we're married to a non-believer. I've seen wonderful situations where God, through the faithfulness of a believing spouse, has brought the unbeliever to faith. I've seen that. I've seen some wives who were extremely patient with difficult men and they came to know the Lord. So there is always that potential. But there's never a guarantee. And Abraham's very clear about that with this servant. Now notice the second person that we are avoid. Avoid a person who's disloyal to God's covenant. Avoid that kind of a marriage partner as well. Did you happen to notice uh, the servant's concern in verse 5? Perhaps the woman may be willing to follow me to this land, may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? What's he saying? Well, he's saying, what if she'll marry Isaac, but she just won't follow to Canaan? Two times, verse 6, verse 8, Abraham says, you must not take my son back there. He's emphatic 
Why? God's will for Isaac was to stay in the land as a testimony to the Israelite people. Do you know Isaac never left the land of Israel? He's the only patriarch who never lived outside the land. If the woman would not go, she would not be committed to God's plan for marriage. That's what Abraham is saying. Now, there is a key phrase that occurs four times in this chapter, and it is the key idea. We're going to see it four times. It is the phrase, steadfast love, in the English Standard Version. It occurs in verse 12, verse 14, verse 27, and verse 49. That phrase is critical to understanding what marriage is all about. If you want to understand what marriage is about, you understand this phrase, steadfast love. The first three times in the chapter, it refers to God's steadfast love. The last time, it refers to Rebecca and her family's steadfast love. Now, let me show you what this phrase means. It comes from the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed is one of the most important Hebrew words in the entire Old Testament. And this is what it means. It means loyal love or loyalty to the covenant. And as you can see, Hesed involves three different relationships. When we are saved, we enter into a covenant relationship with God. In the New Testament, that's the new covenant in Jesus' blood. We just celebrated that. In the Old Testament, it was the Abrahamic covenant, which was a blood covenant, which foreshadowed the new covenant. Now, in this covenant relationship, we first of all have a relationship with God. We are now in covenant with him. And God says, I will be faithful to you. You're now my child. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we read these words, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. How wonderful. But then you'll notice the arrows go both ways because God requires us to be faithful to him, to obey the commands in the covenant. But then notice the covenant extends to our personal families, my family, your family. We are to be loyal to each other as a believing family, husband to wife, wife to husband, parents to children, children to parents. But there's more. There's a third relationship. God's family. We're to be loyal to our extended family the family of God that we are now part of as a believer. Do you know who understood this concept of hesed and articulated it so clearly when she became a believer? Ruth from Moab. She didn't use the word hesed, but notice what she said to Naomi. As she said to Naomi, I've become a believer and I want you to notice what I'm going to do. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. 
Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. This is the text that Ellen's pastor preached on 32 years ago when she and I were married. Now, I have to be honest with you this morning, I had stars in my eyes at that very moment. And I was holding Ellen's hands, and I was looking into her eyes, and I'm not even sure my feet were on the ground. I think I was just kind of floating. So I didn't hear much of what was said. But we taped it. And I can go back. It's an excellent text for wedding. Because it's the essence of Hesed, it is all there. Your God will be my God. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. I won't separate from you. And your people, the believing people of God, will buy my people. All three relationships within the covenant, God, the believing family, God's family, Hesed includes all of them. So at the end of the chapter, when Rebecca says, I will go, she committed herself to Hesed. I will go, all three relationships. And I want you to notice what this meant for her. Here's the map of her journey. From Haran down to Canaan to the town of Hebron where she would marry Isaac is 450 miles. She would never see her family again. All that she had ever known all that she'd ever experienced, everyone that she had ever loved, she would never see again. She couldn't send them a text message. She couldn't call them on the phone. She couldn't get in her car and say, I think I'll go visit Uncle Laban, and I think I'll go visit my dad and my mom. She couldn't do any of that. She would never see them again. What a commitment to God and his will, right? What a wife for Isaac. She would help him fulfill God's plan. You see, that is the purpose of marriage. Yesterday is a very tender day in my life. 18 years ago, my mother died on April 30th. And after she died, as we were going through her belongings, we found a 70-year-old forgotten diary in her belongings. It went back to her late teenage years. And as we read her diary, which she had forgotten about and we didn't know about, we discovered she was dating a man named Bob. And there were excited entries in the diary 
because there were some times when Bob came to church and she was so excited she would write, Bob came to church today. You know what? It was clear what was going on. She was trying to lead Bob to the Lord at the same time while she was dating him. It wasn't working out very well. By the few entries when Bob came to church, it was clear his heart was not in it. And he was coming for her, not for him. Eventually, she found the strength to break it off. It was very difficult. She had fallen very hard for him. In fact, she had to move away and spend some time with some relatives because of her depression. But I'm so glad she found the strength to break that off. When she married my dad several years later, they had total unity in the Lord. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for that. I grew up in a family committed to Hesed. We knew the Lord and he was faithful to us and despite our failings, we tried to be faithful to him. As a believing family, we were loyal to each other, my folks to each other, them to us as kids and my sisters and I to them. And then we were loyal to the believing family, especially our local church those wonderful saints of God that he had brought into our lives that to this day mean so much to me. You see, that was, that's what marriage by God is intended to be. And I want to say to our young people today especially, do not marry someone who follows God because you want them to. Marry someone who follows God because God wants them to. That's the purpose of marriage. And let's ask God to help us because he wants to do that very thing. Let's pray together. If you're a young person here today and you believe that someday the Lord may lead you to enter in marriage, would you say, God, I will do it your way. I believe you care for me. I believe you love me. I believe you want to guide me. And I want to do it your way. And I'll be very careful about a partner who is unbelieving and very careful about a partner who is not committed to Hesed, who is not loyal 
to the covenant relationship with God. Make that commitment now. As long as it takes, you'll be glad you did. Some of us are here today and we have not done this and we're experiencing the pain and hurt of a wrong marriage choice. And some of us are here today and we are currently in an unequally yoked marriage. Know this, that God loves you. He understands where you're at. We've just gone through a time of communion where the Lord forgives and cleanses. And you can experience that cleansing from the Lord and that renewal regardless of the consequences that have come from a wrong marriage partner. And then if you are unequally yoked, you keep praying, you keep living for Jesus, you keep being Christ in that relationship, exhibiting his love, his mercy, his care, and his truth. And God